welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's episode features a conversation with George Yankopoulos. He's the president and chief scientist at Regeneron Pharmaceuticals in Terrytown, New York. Since the late 1980s, he and CEO Len Schleifer have built this company together. These two recall the lean years, when investors wondered if they were backing a science project or helping build a real drug company. But Regeneron has proven itself. It has broken out as one of biotech's big success stories. The company has developed six FDA-approved drugs so far, and it's the third best-performing stock in the S&P 500 over the past decade. Now Regeneron is attempting to lay the foundation for many more drugs by investing in an ambitious, genomics-based drug discovery center. Yankopoulos and Schleifer have strong opinions about the kind of science-based culture they want to create on drug pricing and about how they can keep their edge. Yankopoulos is a forceful personality. You'll hear his passion for science come through clearly in this conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. Now, before we get started, a couple quick plugs. If you like this show, you'll love my subscription newsletter, Timmerman Report. You can go to TimmermanReport.com to subscribe either as an individual or with a group discount for your company or university. As for this podcast, if you are interested in sponsorship opportunities, this is a great way to get your company's name in front of a high-value audience of biotech executives and investors who are listening. Send me an email, luke at timmermanreport.com. The next episode of The Long Run will feature a conversation with Richard Pops, the CEO of Alchemies, about his company's anti-addiction drug, and the role it can play in combating the opioid painkiller addiction crisis. This is a serious conversation and an uncomfortable one at times. You won't want to miss it. Now, join me for the long run. George Yankopoulos, President and Chief Scientific Officer, is joining me here today at Regeneron Pharmaceuticals for the long run. Welcome, George. Welcome to you to Regeneron and visit our facilities. Great to be here. So when I uh, was thinking about coming here, this is my first visit to Regeneron. After years and years of writing about the industry and, and on occasion some of the main events at your company, you have been here since 1989 with Len Schleifer. When this was... Len Schleifer. Okay, all right. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and, and this was just a small thing. You're in your late 20s at this time, how did, what, what kind of, uh, you, you trained as a scientist, both you and Len, and what, what did you envision creating here back then? Well, Len pretty much called me out of the blue before there was any labs or any facilities. It was pretty much just a dream. And at the time, biotech was sort of a dirty word. There were uh, very few cases, if any, of successful scientists moving to biotech. And in fact, all my mentors and heroes were very concerned that I, that I was considering leaving academia to join up with this guy. But I, I really fell in love with Len. I really thought that he had, that first of all, he was a very ethical guy. Um, I felt that he really was dreaming the right dream. And I thought that we could really synergize well together. And part of it was also, you know, it was the right time in my life. Um, You know, my dad kept telling me, 
you know, if you really, if you really believe you can do something big in science and you're depending on these government grants and you're just going to be talking about curing diseases, if you really think you can cure a disease, this is the greatest country in the world. Do something big. And that was right around the time that um, I met Len. And so we decided to get together and take it on. I have to admit that I thought that it was going to be a lot easier and a lot faster. Uh, I am not sure if I really knew what a long haul it would really be, um, uh, you know, what I would have thought back then. But for sure, if I knew how it would turn out, I would do this every time. I think I've heard you say once before that uh, this was an overnight success story that took 25 years. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> right. It's the nature of the business. Yeah. Well, I think that, of course, sometimes people get lucky and there's probably other routes to success. But if you really want to build something that's really sustainable, something that has truly the ability to go from discovery to important new medicines that can help patients and doing it over and over again, particularly across all uh, biologic and disease areas, you can't do that overnight. It, it really takes, as it took in our case, decades of building the background. And we're still, we're still building the background capabilities and technologies. We're always trying to come up with new things and new inventions because that's what you have to be doing. But it is all about developing the foundational capabilities and continuing to innovate and come up with new foundational capabilities that allow you to attack, I think, the hardest challenges facing mankind, which is understanding our biology and taking advantage of that understanding to, to make an impact in disease. Now, I want to talk about some of the more current events later, but let's, let's get started here with, with those early days. I mean, you had trained as a scientist. Now, why? You know, sometimes you hear people talk about how it's important that biotech companies be led by scientists. Um, but, I mean, scientific training is really good in certain respects, but doesn't prepare you for everything that right. you have to do, the way it's classically done in academia. So, what were, why does it matter? What is it good for, being trained as a scientist? Well, I think that that's... The notion of scientists, it's, it's being good to have scientists leading biotech companies is sort of an older notion and then a brand new notion. I mean, back in the days of Roy Vagelis at Merck, he was the paradigm. He was the example that everybody pointed to. Look, this is a guy. He's a top-notch scientist who went from academia to becoming head of R&D, and he built Merck into what became the most admired company in the world and the example for all of us uh, in the history of the biopharma industry in terms of science and innovation leading to new important drugs. I think everybody forgot it. Merck forgot it. As soon as he left, he recommended a scientist take over for him. They put a commercial guy in charge. Some link that to the, um, to the problem subsequently at Merck. Um, and I think we went through a period of decades where, in fact, when, for the first 20 years, when Len and I were in charge of Regeneron, people say, hey, this is, this is the problem. This is what you get when you put scientists in charge, because we had, from the outside, very little to show for those 20 years. But what people don't realize is that is anything worthwhile in the science world, you have to build. And it's not going to look from the outside as if there's 
dramatic commercial successes while you're building the science. I think, in fact, we sort of became the new paradigm when Regeneron took off and became one of the most successful examples uh, and one of the only recent examples of a biotech company completely built from scratch that really has made it into one of the top five biotech companies in the world. All of a sudden people said, wow, maybe that's how we should do it. Maybe we should put scientists in charge. So we're hearkening back uh, to the ancient models you know, of the 70s and 80s with Roy Vagelis and people are maybe realizing that this is a business where, as I said, people don't realize how hard it is. I believe quantifiably maybe the hardest thing that we do as human beings. Look at the odds. 5,000 biotech companies in the United States, not to mention hundreds of major medical institutions, uh, millions of researchers. Last year, 2016, 22 medicines approved by the FDA. Only eight of them, only eight of them first in class. Most of them for orphan diseases treating just a few thousand people. Very few drugs really impacting lots of people suffering from all the important diseases we know about. It was a down year. There were a couple good years before that. Well, but the numbers don't vary by more than twofold. Right. So, you know, you might be talking 20 or 30 or 40 in a good year, but that's still disappointing. And the ones that are really new medicines is still, you know, in the single digit range especially those that aren't addressing orphan diseases. Why is that? Because it is so hard, because so many people aren't doing it the right way. If you look at the numbers from Regeneron, we actually have a sizable fraction of the world's production, one in 5,000 companies. Why? Because I think we built it right. So let's come back to those early days. You had some antibody technology, right? Um, Quite a few other companies did too. I mean, I could rattle off a list of, I think, contemporaries from that period, you know, Abgenix, uh, CAT, uh, PDL, uh, Metarex, they're all gone. Um, what, um, why are you still here? Well, ironically enough, um, it was my mentor, Fred Alt, and I in 1985 that actually made the first proposal to make these mice that could make human antibodies. Uh, and then other companies, in fact, Fred advised and collaborated with other companies, most notably Metarex and Abgenix, to make the first such mice. And we actually collaborated. We had an important collaboration with Metarex. I think um, there's a couple examples, I think, why we have survived and thrived and Many of those companies have, um, ha- have gone by, even though I think that those were great companies. Uh, part of it was just business strategies. And to give a lot of credit to Len, I mean, he helped create a business plan and structure where we would stay independent, whereas a lot of these other companies, their goal was to sort of get bought out. The other thing that we have to credit is that I think that the data actually show that even though we weren't the first Like I said, Fred and I were the first to propose making such mice. We weren't the first to succeed to make such mice, but the data show that our technology really is arguably the best. So the best technology in the right business framework, but just as importantly for these other companies, the technology was the primary foundation of the company. While it is a foundational technology for us, we are buttressing it, supporting it, amplifying it, synergizing with myriad other capabilities and technologies. So for us, 
we can best take advantage of the best antibody technology because we have the best biology. We have the best target validation technology. We have the best target discovery technology. And so it's a huge important component for us, but it's supported by all these other critical foundation technologies. So a lot of other companies were only antibody companies. We were an antibody company. We were also a trap company. We were also, you know, the mouse genetics company. We were also the company that um, was revolutionizing new ways of doing biology. We're now also, I think, the leading human genetics company. So we're many different companies, many different capabilities come together. And certainly the best antibody, fully human antibody technology helps turn a lot of those capabilities into important human therapeutics. So you layer in those technologies over time as it becomes more clear that you need this piece, you need that piece. Is that a reflection of that that scientific mindset um, that, uh, I mean, you alluded to this earlier about Rivagilos, and, and I think, I don't know if you used the word culture, but I thought you were getting there, that, you know, when you said we in the industry look to that as the example. Um, that And that sounds like what you want this to be that that maybe the the this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy you got scientists at the top you then recruit more scientists they have more ideas about technologies that you can layer in i couldn't have said it better myself yeah it's about the culture it's about starting with the science about scientists like us recognizing recruiting the best other scientists to join us in these efforts once you have that culture and once you're devoted to the science and the science is driving everything, and once the scientist is the primary figure in the company, the most revered people in this company are the scientists, that makes it easier to get the best scientists to join you. If you're a big pharma company and commercial is in charge and so forth, you're not going to get the best people. But it, when it starts with the scientific culture driving it, everybody's looking at the scientists for the leaderships, then you get the best scientific leaders. Um, and I should point out, I mean, obviously, there was Roy Vagelis and Mark, that was a great example for us. I think Genentech, particularly in the 80s and the 90s. Um, and unfortunately, their success came a little too late for them to hold on to their, their real research underpinnings and people, because a lot of the people who really built the great Genentech from the research side were gone by the time the 2000s came and they had all their commercial successes. So we could see, as the commercial success was going on, they hadn't maintained that real um, uh, scientific ingenuity and drive and foundation that had actually built them. We are very lucky in that, I think, because of our culture, because of the people we have, because I think we have a great team of people that we all thought we were really working together to build something. Our scientists feel ownership. I mean, they built this place. They own this place. It's their company as well. Almost everybody withstood the ups and downs that we had. So almost all the key early people, and I'm not just talking about me and Len. I'm talking about the dozens and dozens of key scientists that really built this place, from the Neil Stalls to the Drew Murphys to the Jim Fandels to the Nick Papadopoulos, and so on and so on. All those guys are still here. Uh, and they're still excited, and we, in fact, feel like we're just getting started. Now, this, uh, this scientific culture that you're describing, I'm sure that resonates with a lot of people in biotech, and especially at small companies. It's easier to maintain a culture like that when you're under, say, I don't know, 300 people maybe? 
Um, and you probably were for a long, long time, the vast majority of your, your company's history. But now you're big. You got five drugs on the market, maybe six? Six, yeah. Uh, 5,000? We keep, we keep careful track. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you do. Uh, and you got more than 5,000 employees now. Right. Um, and suddenly, uh, your, your job has to evolve. You're, you have to pay attention to a lot more things. How, can you describe that? Sure. That evolution well, let me just point out, though, I mean, just because it, it is a point of pride, but it does reflect who we are. I think this is the first time in history that any company has gone from scratch, has gotten six drugs approved, and all six came from its own labs, all based on its own foundational technologies. I mean, it's really astounding. That's not how the rest of the drug industry works, where everything is, you know, somebody buys a company, somebody licenses something in, you know, Drugs through, go through, it was discovered in academia, and then one small company buys another small company, buys another, you know, finally Pfizer buys it, and that, and then brings it, you know, forward. So it really is unprecedented. I think it really reflects who we are and how we're different. But how do we stay different? I think that's a great question. I think that though we have more than 5,000 people, we're not really one um, monolithic company. I mean, we have different groups within us that have, you know, in some cases their own cultures. Uh, some of them have been built sort of as separate modules. I think we have the greatest manufacturing capability in the business, all internally built. I mean, from the people who are more on the, on the, on the research and science side who develop the technologies and the cell lines and so forth, to the people in process development who then scale them up to the people who are manufacturing at large scale where we now have two plants, one up at Rensselaer and one in Ireland, in, in, in Raheen in Ireland. Those people have a different culture, uh, but it's very tied to our culture. They've sort of built, in many cases, their own parts, modules of this company, um, and they deserve enormous credit tied very much to the rest of our culture and so forth. But by having essentially sub-companies and sub-efforts within it, while we can all stay part of the same unit, we do share so much in terms of our beliefs and our cultures. The research unit, for, for example, which has to be the most innovative and be protected in some way, still stays that way. And it's still only a few hundred people that are really driving that, still led by the same that brain trust that we built over the years of a few dozen really top scientific leaders that I think are some of the greatest scientific minds of our time. We all still work together. We all still get together regularly, literally several meetings a week where we discuss the programs that are going on in research. And in many ways, why? Because we love it so much. It hasn't changed. It's many of the same people incorporating young, new people, bringing in some new ideas and and, 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 and fresh perspectives, but melding with and, and synergizing with the experience and all the knowledge that we've built over the years, I think it's a great way to both maintain and further empower our research efforts. So the research effort is still relatively small, protected, run using the same principles uh, that we built it in over the last 25 years. Now, to play the devil's advocate, someone else in industry might be listening to this and say, well, this is great, George. You're riding high. Uh, you've been able to build it internally. Good for you. But most of science is widely dispersed. 
We have these external R&D strategies for a reason. There's great ideas. Uh, we don't want to suffer from hubris, as in the old not invented here syndrome. Do, uh, so how do you... Uh, how do, you, how do you guard against that? Kind of get, believing you're <laughs> drinking your own Kool-Aid too much. Well, no, I, I think that we do more collaborations with the outside world, um, both scientific and also corporate, uh, than, it, than anyone else. But we do it from, I think, a different position, a real position of strength, where we're real partners and collaborators. I think the problem that a lot of pharma and even biotech companies get into is they think, well, we don't need the internal capability. We'll find it outside. When you do that, there's no counterpart to the great outside people. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on that's great on the outside, but if you don't have the people on the inside who can really work with those people, push them, synergize and so forth, first of all, the company's not even respected. And all you're doing is you're giving money to people on the outside to do what they want to do. We do it in a different way where we have a position of strength on the inside. We have the best scientists on the inside. and we, Any field that's important, we feel like we're leaders in that field. But we don't necessarily feel like we can do it all alone. So whether it be that we establish a major collaboration with somebody, a top human geneticist like Wendy Chung at Columbia with our Regeneron Genetic Center, we're not giving her money. We're giving her capabilities and expertise which she can't get anywhere else, which empowers her science. And we're working from a position of strength where we're not just subsidizing, paying people to do work for us. We're using our science to engage them and do even better, bigger science. We do the same things with outside companies. When we collaborate with, you know, I can imagine if a big company says, oh, we got to get into this, this new CRISPR, this gene therapy space, we're going to buy a company or we're going to invest in a company and so forth. No. We believe we have some of the best capabilities. We've been doing genetic engineering. We've been playing with CRISPR as long, if not longer, than anybody else. But we recognize that an outside company like an Intellia actually has something to bring to the table. And they can do a lot of things that maybe we don't want to be investing or maybe we're not as good at it as doing as them. But we work with them in a position of strength because we take our capabilities and our technology and we try to help them. We try to empower them. And it's really a collaboration of equals. So whether it's the examples with the great academic groups or it's examples with, you know, the new biotech capabilities that we're excited about, when we do these collaborations, we're doing them in a much, much different way. So, so, we, so, so we believe, we believe there's a whole outside world out there, but we can access it, we think, much more powerfully by having our own capabilities in-house to leverage what's going on out there. So by keeping your internal team out there on the edge of science, you're not um, caught flat-footed, so to speak, um, in a position where one day you wake up and realize the, the pipeline isn't very promising, we're sitting on a mountain of cash, we got to go out and buy some company for $10 billion. Yeah, I think that's where people come into trouble, because if you don't have the internal science and the capability... You can't even accurately judge what outside company to buy, what outside technology to trust. So when we're in it, we can evaluate, hey, if there's somebody out there that's really worthwhile, whether it's an Intellia or it's an Adaset or it's another company, we say, hey, yeah, we want to work with them. Whether it's outside academics, we say, hey, yeah, they're bringing something important to the table and we can judge that. We're not just, you know doing intellectual, you know, adventures and saying, oh, who should we buy? Who? And it, it's all done by consultants. 
which is unfortunately how it's done in the restaurant. It's done by top scientists on the inside saying, yeah, we can work with these guys. Together, we can do better. Now, you guys certainly do have a great track record. Six FDA-approved drugs, a couple quite recently. And I think of the history, well, we'll I want to get to this a little bit later, sort of the pre-ILEA and post-ILEA time frame. But um, very, very few companies ever develop more than one. Like a successful company often gets two. Like now you're in a really enviable position having done it multiple times. But still, the industry has this really fundamental problem with R&D productivity. And I talk to lots of people, entrepreneurs, venture capitalists all the time about various ways we're going to put a dent in this, whether it's genomics-based precision medicine or um, induced pluripotent stem cells or organs on a chip or, you know, now we hear a lot about artificial intelligence, you know, deep learning when we look at multiple layers of data between the genome, the metabolome, the proteome, try to find patterns here that the human mind just can't see. I mean, do when you look at all this stuff, I'm sure you look at all of it under the sun. Do you see anything there that you think is really going to make a difference and bring down the, the time, the risk, the expense? Well, that's the thing is too many people count on one trick. Okay. And they're one trick ponies. Okay. I don't think it's ever going to be about one trick. It's sort of what we were just talking about. It's not the fact that we have the best human antibody technology in the world, that's not enough. It's not that we have the best human genetics capabilities in the world now. We're the largest sequencing operation on the planet in terms of sequencing humans. That's not enough. It's not that we actually have the best biology deep research groups. And it goes on and on. It's that we have all of it. And that's the thing that people don't appreciate. This is biology. Life is complicated. Understanding life and disease is really, really complicated. You have to be deep. You have to be broad. And it's impossible to count on one thing. Everybody's always looking for that next one thing. They're hoping like, you know, that great app that makes a difference. Unfortunately, high tech is a lot simpler than biotech. Okay, it's a lot easier to, to make it in that world. In our world, it's about understanding life. And like I said, the numbers say, as you said, very few companies, you know, out of the thousands and thousands of biotech, almost none come up with one drug. Okay, the ones that come up with more than one drug become glorified. Okay, the ones that come up with six, there's only one of those. Okay, and why is that? It's because we are so deep, we're so committed, and we're so broad, and there's not going to be one trick. We believe in all of these things, everything that you bring up. We're heavily invested. We're trying. We're always working on the next thing. We're pushing every boundary that we can push. But if you're just in one space, if you're just trying one trick, it's all too complicated. Well, I don't have enough time all day to talk about all of these no. things, but I, let's talk about one that you've made a conscious decision to invest in, and that's the Regeneron Genetics Center, the sequencing effort. Largest in the world, you say. A lot of people would say, isn't this the domain of academia? Why? This is really early stage stuff. Why, why do this in a company? Well, that's been our attitude the whole time, which is, yeah, there are things, obviously, that one might be considered so early in you know, the research uh, landscape that it's probably not worth our investing in. 
But we fundamentally always believed that doing early stage fundamental research where you can see the applications, um, we have to be in it to win it. It uh, doesn't mean we have to be in it alone. Like I said, we have collaborations with academic groups ranging, I mentioned Wendy Chung at Columbia, the Hospital for Special Children, uh, groups in every university all over the country, as well as healthcare groups like Geisinger is important. We just recently announced a major initiative where we're going to be sequencing the UK biobank of 500,000 people, uh, and we're looking for more such things. Yet, yeah, these things in some ways are research, but they are so close to the heart of what biotech should be about. We're connecting, and we've already realized that it works. We're connecting human genetic variation to human disease, and that's a great starting point. So already, it's not that far from what we do every day. We've had drug programs that we were working on. We weren't quite sure if they were going to work or not. We found out that there's genetic variation in humans that supports the notion that, yes, blocking that pathway is going to help in this disease. Okay, that gets us much more excited and, more importantly, provides us a lot more motivation to really push that pathway, let alone the new discoveries that we make where we find the gene, oh, this this gene variation protects against this disease, or this gene variation causes that. There's This is where all the great stories start. Well, this is like the PCSK9 story. Exactly. Well, our first drug approval, which is our IL-1 trap or Arcalist in cold-induced inflammatory syndrome, was perhaps the first example, one of the really first examples, other than deficiency diseases, of going from a human genetic disease, understand mapping it, understanding it, seeing what the pathway was, coming up with a human biologic that blocks it, and having overwhelming benefit, 85% average improvement in a horrific disease. That's how you want genes to work. That was one of the first examples. And now, as you said, PCSK9, where we got the first approved anti-PCSK9 agent for lowering cholesterol and hopefully soon um, to have even stronger data suggesting that it be preventive in heart disease, that's now one of the most heralded examples of going from a gene discovery by our collaborators, Helen Hobbs and Jonathan Cohen down in the University of Texas Southwestern. That it's another example of another great group that we work with and we synergize with because we bring things to the table uh, for them um, that, that has led to a great story. And in fact, almost all of our stories, all of our new medicines have a major human genetic component that drove them. Now, you're talking a lot about the successes of Regeneron, and you have every right to, but uh, part of the job of the chief scientific officer is to uh, kill programs that aren't working. You're always working on imperfect or incomplete data sets when you have to make these decisions about how to spend the company's resources. How, how do you, can, you, can you point to an example of maybe a project that you've killed or, or how, how you came to that decision? Yeah, well, we're, I don't know if it's really killing them. It's more that the, the projects where the data becomes stronger and stronger, because there's always accumulation of more and more information and data. Like I said, we might have a little human genetics data, which we then pursue. And if the human genetics data looks stronger, then we continue to pursue it. And then maybe we do a humanized genetic model in a mouse. And if that looks good, then we pursue it. And then we make let's say a fully human antibody, and we try it in the genetically humanized mouse model, and then it works. 
And as the data accumulates, the story gets stronger and stronger. And then, like I said, you just keep pushing it and keep pushing it and keep pushing it. So it's more a matter of where you invest your resources as the stories get stronger. We've had very rare cases of when the data starts accumulating more and more and more and we start pushing it, that we get late stage failures. That is seen all over the rest of the industry. Happens all the time. Does not really happen with us. Why? Because it's such an accumulation of knowledge and data that keeps driving us forward that by the time we're pushing things, okay, at that point, you know, we rarely see failures. As, you know, Roy Vagilis has told us, by the time we get into late stage data, we should be very, very sure um, about what results are going to show. So if you're in an early stage program and say that early signal that you thought you saw starts to fade, what do you do then? Do you well, just kind of dial so, back yes, the funding? Yes, basically what we do, exactly. We basically pause things at whatever stage and we try to get better and better data. So I think a lot of other people push forward in the absence of data. We just don't push forward in the absence of really strong data in many cases. Uh, there is a couple examples that I could point to where we have done it for competitive reasons, where we didn't think the data was strong and other people were moving forward and we have the capability, we had the capability of, of pushing things in the clinic and we said, okay, we're going to try it even though we don't think this is going to work. But most of the time when we push things forward, it's because we have, we think, overwhelming data packages, which is why we've been so rarely wrong in late stage trials. You mentioned competition. I'm glad you did because that's part of uh, part and parcel with success. Uh, a lot of people start looking at you. Uh, they start to mimic you. Uh, you can probably hear the competitive footsteps every day. I mean, Amgen's out there with their PCSK9. You know, just the other day, uh, AbbVie released some Jack One inhibitor data that, you know, may be competitive with uh, Dupixin. Um, how do you think about uh, the competition? Well, it is interesting because we are so broad in that we're working across so many areas that it really is us against the world. And though I think invariably any one competitor would be hard for them to sort of keep up with us, of course, when there's 5,000 companies out there, yeah, one of them will compete with us in PCSK9 and, and will do well. I mean, you bring up Amgen. I think that, you know, they've done a great job developing their antibody uh, in PCSK9. It's, it's clearly a very effective agent. On the other hand, many other companies have failed trying, including Pfizer, in a late-stage phase three trials stage after they spent billions they failed, which shows how hard this business is. But when you're winning and there's 5,000 competitors, there's usually going to be one or two that are they're going to also be be there challenging you. Like Dupixin is a great story where we're quite ahead of the competition. It's a first-in-class, spectacular um, uh, new treatment that really seems to be attacking the core, the 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 the, the fundamental drivers of of maybe all allergic disease. Um, and that's why it's getting so many people excited. And the data it's already approved in atopic dermatitis, where it got breakthrough status, and the data is really stunning in terms of how it can really make a difference in patients' lives. But like you said, when people see that, everybody's going for it. Everybody's gunning for it. They want to you know, they want to follow on and see if, if they can get a little piece of that pie. Now, I saw you give a, a talk recently where you mentioned that Regeneron has never raised prices of its drugs. 
this is you know the biggest issue in the industry, the big rub in between how it interfaces with society. Um, now, I think in order to understand this, I think you have to come back to the ILEA case. And I, I looked at this before coming in today. Um, I mean, it looks like to me that uh, you know an economist would look at that story and say, well, you, you came into the VEGF space with a, a drug for wet uh, acute uh, age-related macular degeneration and um, a pretty similar clinical profile to uh, Lucentis that was out there from Genentech. Uh, but there was, a, there was a giant gap in the market. There was a high-priced Lucentis, and then there were compounding pharmacies that were you know, taking small doses of Avastin that were real cheap, and they could get you know, comparable data. You came in and undercut Lucentis on price. Having done the proper clinical trials to give uh, you know, the FDA and reimbursers the confidence in your data set, but you did this rare thing in the industry where you actually, as I say, an economist would say, competed on price. Similar product, lower price. And it has turned out to be a real winning strategy. Can you talk about yeah. that, that thought process? Yeah. I think that it wasn't that we really undercut the Lucentis price because um, basically per injection, we were just a few dollars lower. Uh, we did that deliberately because we thought that we didn't, even though we thought we had a premium product, I mean, that was the, the big driver, I think, the difference. I mean, basically, it turns out that we actually had the clinical trial data that showed that, you know, these drugs have to be injected into the eye. We actually showed head-to-head that we can inject half as frequently and get as good data. That's a big, big advantage. Not only that, even with the less injections, we actually showed the fundamental problem that you get in the eye, that you get swelling in the back of the eye, we did a better job of controlling that swelling, even with the less injections. And then we still, on a per-shot basis, provided a little bit, a little bit of a, of a lower price compared to Lucentis. I think what really drove uh, the fact that ILEA has been a blockbuster, and it's really a really rare case where it's still growing after five and six years, one never sees that. And why is that? Well, it's, it's because the drug really works. It really makes a difference in terms of drying out the eye and in terms of blocking VEGF. And now, as you probably know, the National Eye Institute and the National Institutes of Health did side-by-side studies, which are rarely done, comparing us to both those um, uh, other approaches that you mentioned. And in their studies, we beat them by one to two lines on one of these eye charts, which is huge. George, hearing everything that you're saying here, most companies would look at this same kind of data set and say, well, we've got a premium product. We'll price it at 20, 30, 40% more. And that's, that's how we've gotten into this kind of you know, arms race of pricing. Well, yeah, I think that maybe other companies would have done that. I think that, like we always say, I mean, we believe we're sort of the legacy of Roy Vagilis and, you know, what he what he brought to the industry and what he meant to the industry in terms of fair and appropriate pricing. We think that we did a good job of doing a fair and appropriate pricing there. I think that we've also been acknowledged. Um, Our most recent launch with Dupixent, um, where we priced in a brand new space. There was no other biologics for atopic dermatitis. Atopic dermatitis is considered as serious, if not more serious, a disease than psoriasis. There's multiple competing drugs for psoriasis. We priced our drug at less than half the price of the average psoriasis drugs, just because we think 
It's the appropriate thing to do. We do think that appropriate drug pricing and fair drug pricing and what's going on in the industry, you know, might in some ways be hurting the industry in terms of people trying to get every last penny out of their prices. We think in the long run, it's better to be responsible and to be fair about drug prices. But I do think that what we should also recognize is though this is an important short-term problem that we should all talk about, and I think that we're representing good leadership here in terms of in these cases where we've been acknowledged by the outside world that we're not one of the bad players. We're doing things responsibly, but because we're innovating and we're bringing you important drugs and drugs that based on their capabilities are really continuing to grow, that's why we can afford to do fair pricing. And But that really gets at the crux of the issue that people don't understand. If today we just, as an industry, just gave all of the drugs away for free, okay, what would that do in the long run? Okay, that would kill the greatest innovative healthcare capability in history, which is that of the United States, which is not doing well enough as it is, but it's still the greatest that exists in the world. What we should recognize is, yes, drug pricing and trying to be fair and responsible with drug pricing is an important current issue. We have to deal with it. But the much, much, much bigger issue is what you talked about before, is that people don't understand how to optimize innovation and productivity in R&D to bring important new drugs. If we don't come up with important new drugs for neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, for metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes and obesity, for new infectious diseases that challenge us all the time, if we don't up our game as an industry, these drug pricing issues that we, that we have now are going to just be a rounding error. We're going to get drowned in disease, and we're going to have to do a much better job. That's the fundamental problem. And, and that's where I think we have to shift the conversation. The conversation has to be how, as an industry, maybe we can use Regeneron as a model, how more players in the industry can be more innovative, bringing more medicines to the world, doing a better job so that we can keep up with the impending healthcare epidemics that are otherwise going to doom us as a society. And these current drug price issues are going to be trivial in comparison to what we're going to be dealing with when tens and tens of millions of people are going to be suffering from Alzheimer's or maybe a quarter of the country is going to have type 2 diabetes. What are we going to do there if we don't have drug? We need more investment in this space. We need more investment in the NIH, in the budget for the NIH. It's a little silly from my perspective that we're, we're investing as a nation $30 billion to attack what are arguably some of the most important challenges we have as a species, all of these impending medical crises. We should be spending, I would argue, at least an order of magnitude more just in the basic research, but we should also come up with better incentive plans and better approaches to get the industry to do more R&D more effective R&D and figure out how to get better innovation out of the rest of the industry. That's the central problem of the industry. And it really is on you guys. Uh, nobody on the outside is going to fix that for you. Yeah. Well, I do think, I do think that what, if I was in government, that's what I'd be trying to figure out because we have an old expression. Okay. And basically it, 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 it just reflects biology and evolution. You get what you select for. Okay, so you're going to get the types of behaviors that you select for. If we could think a little bit better, not about trying to say, oh, bad guys, let's cut prices. Let's figure out how to lower costs. Let's do this. No, what we should be thinking about, how do we create the right selective pressures 
in order to improve R&D investment and R&D innovation. Now, you and Len have both been pretty outspoken about some of the bad behavior that uh, you've seen um, and has been widely reported on in the industry, guys like Martin Shkreli, Valiant, etc. But even, you know... um, some, some members of the industry that, you know, continue to, you know, kind of operate on that price increase every year model. That's sort of a way of papering over a lack of innovation. If you don't have new drugs coming out of the pipeline, you got to increase your revenue somehow. You raise it past the rate of inflation every year. Um, why? I mean, you guys could raise the prices of your drugs in line with inflation and nobody would bat an eye. Um, do you do that? Why, why wouldn't you do that? Well... I think that we're, like I said, we're just trying to live up to the legacy and to the lessons from Roy Vangelis. And I think that we're, we just believe that we want to do the fairest things possible while doing the best things for our business. And as you said, if you're innovating, if you're coming up with new opportunities, you can do that. Um, But I think, as you said before, this is the major problem in the industry. Okay. It's not, the problem is not that people like big companies and so forth are raising their drug prices. Yeah, that's that that's a short-term problem. But that's really a symptom. It's not the actual problem itself. It's like the cough when you have lung cancer. Well, you see the other- fundamental problem is the lack of innovation. You so see if other- Pfizer was coming up with dozens of new drugs every year, they wouldn't have to worry about depending on drug price increases to, to support their growth. It's because they can't do the drug growth that's causing increase in the prices. And that's what we have to address. And you see other manifestations of this as well in the market, different flavors of it, let's say. Like last week, Allergan comes out with this uh, patent gambit where they transfer it over to an Indian tribe with sovereign immunity so that generic companies can't challenge their patents in court. I mean, to protect a franchise for dry eye, I mean, what is that all about? What's what's your reaction to things like that? Well, I I do think... um, you know, and Len's done a great job, I think, uh, uh, you know, highlighting this point. I think the patent system, which, which is encoded in our Constitution, okay, and it's intended to drive innovation, and it's actually a deal that, that the government does with innovators, that in the short term, if you innovate, you're entitled to, for a short period of time, a great return on that innovation. You deserve it. And that should be the driver of innovation. But at some point, the return back to society is that the patent runs out and people are able to now you know, produce the product uh, and provide it at a much lower cost because the patent runs out. So I think that system sort of works. That's part of what I was talking about. We have to protect innovation. We have to create the incentives for innovation. But it has to be done in a fair way. And I think you know our Constitution tried to do that and did a a great job of it. And we just have to continue to try to protect the right way of promoting innovation, but eventually also allowing um, the benefits to society at a much lower cost. So yes, patents should run out. They shouldn't go forever. They should not go forever. A couple personal questions. Um, you and Len have been working side by side for however many years. I mean, I, 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 this is a rare thing. I don't think you ever... I mean, I don't know anybody who's worked with anybody side by side for close to 30 years. Um, how long do you want to keep doing this? Well, we have a, a few good models, by the way. There are other people. Um, you know, we always point to our own famous board of directors, Brown and Goldstein, Nobel Prize winners that have been working together since the 70s. They're still inseparable. We just 
You know, we had our board directors meetings last week. And we just spent a lot of time with them. And in some ways, you know, as Len said, it's sort of like either a married couple or I like to think instead of it as like brothers. Okay. If you see us and, and you know, other people see us all the time, you know, we bicker, we fight, but we have such enormous respect and true, you know, underlying love for each other. I appreciate Len. I think that, you know, he's one of the smartest guys in the world, but even more importantly, he's one of the most ethical guys in the world. And I think that he is driven by the right motivation. I mean, number one, you know, he was raised on the same mantra I was. His dad gave him the saying about doing well by doing good, and he he lives by that. He breathes that. Okay, I believe in the same things. And when we argue about things, we're arguing about theories, and we're arguing about approaches, and we're arguing about, oh, is this the best thing to do or that the best thing to do? But fundamentally, we're all after the same thing. We're all interested in the same thing. And, you know, Len gives a great story about how he knows you know, we'll have been doing this too long. The things that we most argue about, unbelievably enough, after 25 or almost 30 years now, are basic scientific theories underlying disease and, and what we should be doing in terms of pathways we should be exploring. That's what we argue about. And he always says, you know, if, if we're in one of our offices arguing with each other about that and somebody comes in, you know, waving this week's sales numbers... If we stop our argument so that we can check out the sales numbers, we know that we're done for. But uh, we have a great relationship, and it extends beyond, I think, me and Len. I think that, you know, maybe we sort of sort of set the example. But it's the same way. When you're talking about, you know, how we interact with other key senior leaders here, a Neil Stoll or a Drew Murphy, or now we have a new head of clinicals doing a great job, David Weinrich, and the, and the names go on and on. We have these great relationships where we're not afraid. We're not afraid to mix it up. We're not afraid to argue, but we're arguing, you know, about the facts. Well, you got your eye on the mission. Yeah. You're not taking your eye off the ball. Like the famous, uh, you know, uh, Apple story between Jobs and Scully. You're probably familiar with this, right? Where Jobs was obsessed with creating the best possible product. And then this new CEO comes along and he's obsessed with hitting the quarterly numbers. Big difference. And the whole organization takes on that different kind of ethic. Um, yeah, and it, it, the same thing could happen. You, you take well, your eye off the ball. Well, like, you know, you know as, as I was saying, I mean, you know, the great thing is I think we're all in it together. And like Len always says, you know, he learns the quarterly numbers every quarter, and a few weeks later he forgets them all because that's not what's important. Well, you in need the, the money to make to keep the enterprise going. Right. It's not to trivialize that. This isn't, you know, charity. Right. But this in, is a business. But... But exactly. it can't be the absolute defining obsession. Well, but the other thing about it is when, you know, this is a long-term business, and this is what a lot of people don't realize. And if you worry about the short-term fluctuations, you get distracted in the wrong way. We shouldn't be worrying about this week's quarterly numbers. You know what we're worrying about? We're worrying about the quarterly numbers five years from now and ten years from now. And that's why we're all so different, okay? It, most people, most leaderships, you know, the, like I said, gone are the days of, of, of the Roy Vagiluses, okay? In almost every company, leadership is there for three, four, five years. They're not worried about R&D. You know why they're not worried about R&D? Because they're not going to survive to see the fruits of that R&D. So to them, the R&D is just an anchor that's dragging down their quarterly profits. For us, we're, we still plan. I still plan on being here forever, God willing. Okay, and like I said, many of us feel like we're just getting started. 
So we're still thinking five, 10, 20 years down the road, because those are the time frames you have to be thinking about. And if you get distracted by meaningless quarterly fluctuations or the daily stock price or things like that, you're not really looking at long-term growth. This is a long-term game. This is, you know, this is an endurance race. And this is, this is a situation where the winners are the ones who are defined not by what happens, you know, this month and next month and a year from now, but years from now. We plan to still be here and still be innovating. And that's the thing that I have to say. One of the things that I'm proudest about, I just learned that for, I don't know how many years in a row, we just got voted among the top 10 most innovative companies in the world across all industries. So when we started this, that was the knock against us. That was the rub. Oh, these guys are so innovative and all that. They don't know how to come up with drugs. It's a science project. Yeah, exactly. They were saying, you know, it's a science project. They don't know how to come up with drugs. Well, guess what? We know how to come up with drugs. But the thing that I'm proudest about is we're still recognized 25, 30 years into our life cycle as still being among the most innovative companies in the world. I think we're the, still the innovation leader in our space. And that's what I'm proudest about because I think that's never going to end because that's in our that's in our genes. It's in it's who we are. Well, and this is reflected in the um, taking on the sponsorship of the Science Talent Search, the Regeneron Science Talent Search. I mean, the Junior Nobels, some people call it, right? I mean, I, that's, that's that's really an example of that long term. Yeah, I, you know, an example of our long term thinking is, I, I think that this summer we had 250 interns. Okay, we do the intern project because we feel like we should be giving back. But believe it or not, we've been around long enough that we have people who start out as interns here who are vice presidents now leading major efforts. In fact, the head of our Regeneron Genetic Center started as an intern here. And that just shows that we believe in the next generation. We believe we can help them. And what we want them to do is to stand on our shoulders to take it to the next level. And that's what I think this is all about. This is all about, you know, this is all about all of us as a species working together, helping each other going forward. And we're one example, I think, of a company that's figured out how to do it right. And we're about it for the long term. And that's why we sponsor the Regeneron Science Talent Search, because uh, we want to inspire the next generation. So many of us, including Len and I, are actual alumni of that program. And for us, it changed our lives. Well, we want to change the lives of the next generation. We want to take interns now, and we want those interns to get inspired. We want them to see how it's done, and if some of them come back and do it here and help take us to the next level, that's the dream. I actually rode in my shuttle bus from the hotel here today with an intern uh, at, at Regeneron, and uh, she didn't know I was a reporter. <laughs> and she said some you know, quite nice things, so I, I thought you'd probably like to hear that. Um, she probably, I hope, told you that we meet. I meet with the interns on a regular basis because... I want them to know how important they are and that they are the future and that we're counting on them. Last question. Um, what's a good book that you've read recently? Hood, Trailblazer of the Genomics Age. <laughs> well, that very much appreciated, but uh, other than mine. <laughs> um, it's interesting. I am not, I have to say, an avid reader. I, I guess maybe I don't have enough time for it, um, though uh, I do have four kids. And this summer, one of my kids made me read a book, which I actually thought was really interesting and maybe did actually, um, uh, even though it was written almost 100 years ago, did actually point to some issues in our society today. It was a book called Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. I'm familiar. <laughs> yeah, I think it, you know, it, it, it pointed to, to, to the fact that we do, I think, in our society have to figure out ways 
to highlight the people who can really move society, the people who can really innovate, um, and that we want to use them as, as, as great examples for the next generation and that maybe you know, that's what young people have to see, that the people who can really make a difference, who can really you know, push humankind forward, I mean, that's what people want to be striving to do. Well, if you guys are able to uh, solve the fundamental R&D problem um, that the industry is up against, um, it, it will make it will relieve some of the pressure on, um, well, on I think some that, of these other issues we've talked we, about. You know, we are doing our share. Hmm. It's a matter of, and I think other people are hopefully beginning to see it, it's a matter of can we get other people to follow our example? Can we get other people to realize it's a long game? Can we get other people to realize that it takes a lot of investment of years to build something of fundamental value and strength that is really broad and deep that can really then take on the problem? You know, we have to fight against um, all the incentives right now that try to turn it into a short game. That's what I was talking about. You know, if, you know, if I was in government and, and, and policy right now, I'd be trying to change the game, so I'd be trying to change the incentives, so I'd be trying to select for long behavior, for the people who are really going to make a difference over the long term, because that's what really matters. Well, that's all very uh, in line with the theme of this show. So, George Yankopoulos, thanks for joining me today on The Long Run. Luca, really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Music for this show comes from D.A. Wallach. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Todd Bennings created the logo. Next on The Long Run, I speak with Richard Pops, the CEO of Alchemies. In this episode, we talk about the opioid painkiller addiction crisis and what his company can do about it. Alchemies has one of the very few anti-addiction drugs available on the market. But it's not a simple, straightforward story. The drug is not for everyone, and this issue is hard to talk about at times. Don't miss this upcoming episode of The Long Run.